So Mark chapter 10 is where we are at this morning, a beautiful chapter that focuses our attention squarely on discipleship. If you remember, there's this shift in Mark 8 as Jesus has uh, his identity confessed by Peter and Jesus begins to predict his death and resurrection. There's a shift from Jesus going out to all the people, ministering to anyone everywhere. In Mark 8, he turns his attention and begins to geographically and, and missionally head toward Jerusalem. So all of Mark, from Mark 8 to the end, he's heading toward Jerusalem where, of course, he would culminate his ministry with his sacrifice. And Jesus walks through, uh, in, in chapter 9, he'd been talking to them uh, about what it meant to, to identify as a disciple of him and what that means as far as humility and serving one another, what that means in our battle with sin that James will look at next week. And then in chapter 10, what does a disciple of Jesus look like in his relationship to children, money, possessions, and even death. And we'll begin today with marriage. What is distinct about Jesus and his view of marriage in that day, and then, of course, even today? Beginning in chapter 1, he set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, as was his custom. He taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore... What God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In the time that I've been a pastor in the local church, just 18 years uh, in July, there might be no more difficult issue to deal with than marriage and divorce. Whether it's looking at a young couple and trying to help them discern, does God want them to become a, a married couple? Counseling married couples caught in cycles of conflict and sin. Counseling one party about if they should seek divorce or reconciliation or remarriage. Working with couples who are walking through adultery and infidelity. And now we add uh, navigating the, the issue of same-sex marriage and relationships and how do we declare biblical clear truth but still love people who are most offended by that clear biblical truth. Specifically, the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage can be really difficult because there's a lot of guys, theologians, churches that I like and love and agree with on many things, and they're all over the spectrum on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Some take a very hard stance. If, um, if, uh, if, if there's, there's hardly any grounds for biblical divorce, and uh, if there is biblical divorce, you can't ever get remarried as long as the other spouse is still living. Um, and so they have a very uh, one man, one woman for life, one covenant. No, no way they should ever be separated uh, under any circumstances, um, except maybe if someone gets arrested. But even then, they would say stay together because reconciliation is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And you, you understand that thinking and you, and you sympathize with that line of thinking. You get it. And then, of course, you have the other end of the spectrum. It's you know, much looser, much, many more allowances for biblical divorce and remarriage. And, and then guys all, 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 all between that spectrum, all over the place. And 
I like and, and agree with them on many things, but they can't even agree on this because the Bible isn't specifically clear on all of this. There's a lot of allowance for various interpretations of what's okay in biblical divorce, what's allowable in biblical remarriage. So let's walk through what Jesus teaches in this passage. There's no way to handle all of that, and so I, if I try to handle it all, I may only stir up more questions. I hope it goes without saying. If you're like confused after you leave here today and you want to talk more about this, um, please, I'm available. You have leaders here who are available who help walk you through that and be glad to have that conversation with you. I also want to be very sensitive to anyone and everyone who's walked, uh, is walking, has walked through the brokenness that is divorce. Um, I've heard it said divorce is worse than death. From the people I've known who've walked through divorce, I think that that's true. One author put it like this, divorce, uh, death is a clean pain while divorce is a dirty pain. Increasingly, it's becoming less and less possible to find people who haven't been affected directly or are not close to others who've been affected directly by divorce. It's, it's everywhere. And so no guilt trips are intended here. No shame is intended to be heaped upon you by either me or I think by the passage or by Jesus himself. I don't believe divorce is the unforgivable sin that should define someone for the rest of their life and make them, in, some, in the eyes of some, unfit to serve in capacities in the local church. Uh, we weep and we grieve and we bear this burden with you as much as we can while pointing you to the goodness and sufficiency of Jesus. Several years ago, I walked with a lady I was pastoring, had been pastoring for a long time, and she walked through uh, what I believe was biblical grounds for divorce after 30 years of marriage. Um, the verbal and emotional um, abuse, as well as the threats of physical violence, had, had finally gotten to a tipping point. And um, now five years later, her ex-husband is uh, dying from cancer, and she is counseling her kids how to love their father well all the way to the end. This beautiful picture of Jesus' love and forgiveness that she feels toward him as she encourages her kids to love him well all the way to the end. So if you're here and you've been impacted by the pain of divorce, please know it's not the unforgivable sin. There is mercy from the Lord, grace from the Lord, forgiveness from Jesus available to you and your family always. But as far as the text goes, Jesus is traveling from Capernaum down toward Jerusalem. He's getting closer to Judea and beyond that to Jordan. And beyond the Jordan, he's in this region called Perea, and he's approached by a Pharisee who had a question, not because he was curious or ignorant, but he says he wanted to trap him. And so he asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now Matthew's account of this conversation adds a few more details. Matthew 19.3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce, divorce one's wife for any cause? Now Jesus, being in the region of Perea, is the region of Herod Antipas, who's already cut off the head of John the Baptist for raising questions about the legitimacy of his marriage, and possibly these Pharisees are hoping Jesus puts his foot in his mouth in the same way and ends up in the same place. That's probably part of their motivation. They had other motivations we'll get to in a little bit. But Jesus asked, what did Moses command? And they gave the basic understanding of Deuteronomy 24, and then responds by walking them all the way back to creation. So let, we're going to do that as well. Let's go back to creation, deal with the primary two Old Testament texts that form this foundation of this conversation. As you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have creation, 
And after God created all things in those two chapters, everything was good except one thing, Genesis 2.18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God brings all the animals before Adam in part to demonstrate the authority of man over creation because Adam named all the animals. That was a sign of authority ruling over them, dominion. But also to show Adam, out of all these animals, none of them are fit to be your helper. You need something else. So verse 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that, brought, that the Lord God had taken from the, the man he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. God creates Eve, and she is perfect and suitable and the exact helper and companion Adam needed. This is God's creative ordination of marriage, God's perfect picture of how we best live. One man, one woman, one flesh, one covenant for life. There is no hint of divorce There's no discussion of divorce in God's creative order. There's no hint of separation except the man and woman leaving their homes of origin and cleaving to each other. The problem is in establishing marriage, and really it begins in the next chapter, God's putting together two sinners. That's really the problem in all of our marriages. Like, I know what you're thinking, ladies. I know. I'm sitting right next to them. And I know what you're thinking, guys. I know. I'm sitting right next to her. What we really need to be doing is looking in the mirror. Because that's where it starts, is that we're sinners and we love to sin against each other. You can talk about insecurities, defense mechanisms, daddy issues, conflict resolution skills, but the core issue is we're both sinful because we still have sin inside of us. And so by the time of Moses and the Israelites going into the promised land, divorce and the desire to divorce has become a problem. So in Deuteronomy 24, God, through Moses and the law, begins to put in some checks and balances. It is this issue in Deuteronomy 24 that's being referred to when they mention a certificate of divorce. This explanation by Moses in this chapter was used by Jews in Jesus' day to commit innumerable acts of unrighteousness. And this abuse of God's law is what Jesus is speaking against that would make him and his disciples unique. So let's look at what Moses said, Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house, and if he, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, if you kind of notice that in me reading that, the ESV translation shows this well. Those four verses are really just one long sentence. There's really only one verb in that entire section in verse 4, and you shall not bring sin upon the land. So what you have is a law set up to prohibit just one kind of remarriage. If a woman is divorced by her first husband because of some indecency and is sent away and she marries again and is divorced a second time or the second husband dies, 
She cannot go back and remarry her first husband. That's really all that passage is about. But in Jesus' day, that passage was taken and abused throughout all the years so that by the time of Jesus, it was used to justify all kinds of divorce and even command divorce, which was never God's intention in the law, to command people to be divorced. So three things about this passage. Number one, uh, Deuteronomy 24. Number one, divorce is being controlled here. The woman can only be divorced if there is some indecency found in her. There is not an allowance or a concept here for no-fault divorce, which became legal in our country in the 70s. There is nowhere here or anywhere in Scripture that okays divorce simply because we're not getting along or other frivolous reasons. I counsel couples who come to me with marriage issues. The first thing I'm going to tell you is I want you to stay together. The first thing I'm not going to tell you is that you should get a divorce. I think you should stay together. Unless one of them is doing something that they should be arrested for right then and there, whether it's infidelity, whether it's unfaithfulness, whether it's pornography, whether it's uh, conflict, anger, whatever the issue is, let's work through it. God's put you together. He's not desired to tear you apart. So even this crisis you're going through, God's not intending for it to destroy your marriage. Let's, let's, let's push forward with the intention to stay together. And, and that's God's desires for, for marriages to stay together, even though he makes an allowance for divorce. This is only in this passage, this was allowed only in the case of indecency. That's the key term. There's a lot of debate over what that means. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament, and it refers to human excrement. So whatever this indecency is, it's some kind of gross, shameful behavior on the part of the woman. It doesn't refer to adultery. How do we know? Because adultery is handled elsewhere in the law, and the penalty for adultery was death. Both parties in the Old Testament would be stoned. That's some kind of, this is some kind of sexual indecency. Now, by Jesus' day, they didn't have the right to stone people. That was handled by the Romans. And so adultery would not be punished by death by the Jews, but through this certificate of divorce. So, first thing about that passage in Deuteronomy 24 it's controlling divorce. It's only allowed in this one case. Secondly, this whole law was written to protect the woman. They had no protection, women. Women could not choose to be divorced from the husband back then. And so it was done so they would have this certificate so people would know they were free to remarry. The certificate of divorce, people would know this. In fact, you can read some of these found in historical records. It would say something like, she was faithful and is free to remarry. Only the men could divorce, the women had no protection. This gave them some protection, so people knew their status. Thirdly, this speaks to the solemnity and permanence of marriage. You just can't move in and out of marriage, so much so that you can't go back to your first husband. So in some ways, this law is limiting divorce and remarriage, which was badly needed in that culture. Now that's Deuteronomy 24. Fast forward back to Jesus' day, Mark 10. By Jesus' day, there were basically two schools of thought on divorce. They were both drawn from two rabbis who had taught and established tradition over the years. And the two opposing positions were based on the interpretation of these rabbis and this indecency statement from Deuteronomy 24. One school, the school of Shammai, was very conservative in their handling of divorce. This rabbi interpreted some indecency to refer only to sexual misconduct. 
So you could only divorce if there was some serious sexual misconduct. But if there was sexual misconduct, divorce was commanded. So it, it had a narrow definition of when you could be, be divorced, but if that happened, you had to be divorced, commanded. The other school, Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, was very liberal. He interpreted some indecency to basically include anything and everything. It was the no-fault divorce. If the wife burns his food, he could say, I'm done with you, you're divorced. If she was caught talking to another man in public, I'm done with you, you're out. If her husband simply found another woman more attractive, she could be divorced. Very loose, very liberal. Now what both schools of thought did agree on was in the case of adultery, divorce was not only expected, it was encouraged and even commanded. In this passage in Mark, along with Matthew 10, the parallel passage, you get the fullest treatment of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. And the Pharisees basically were asking, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? So Jesus is the school of Hillel right? This is what's intended in this question. Are they right? The liberal interpretation right? Can we just divorce our wives for whatever reason we want? And Jesus, because he's Jesus and he's brilliant and amazing, will never be trapped in the box of man-made traditions. You will never corner him. You will never box him in. You'll never get him putting his foot in his mouth, stumbling over his words. He always is three steps ahead of everybody. And he answers their question by taking them back to creation. Jesus says, I'm going to take you all the way back to what God intended in marriage to begin with. And this, this is what I want to make sure you get this morning. When you, you talk about a subject like this, it's only natural for our minds, because we're sinful humans, to focus on exceptions and rules, trying to figure out what's okay. Like our kids, when they get old enough to figure this out, and there they realize, well, this is okay. Well, if this is okay, then maybe this is okay. Right, Dad? Maybe this is okay. And they're always trying to expand those boundaries. And so we like to do that as well. We want simple. We want everything spelled out. Give me all the circumstances, all the situations where this is okay and that's okay. So I know it's like a formula. Let me turn it into a formula where we don't have to walk by faith, uh, but we can walk by sight. We see the rules. We follow the rules because our hearts long for rules because we want to be in control. And, and the Spirit of God is continually breaking that so that we trust Him. We seek Him. We depend on the Spirit in everyday life. And so... Uh, we love to have all the exceptions spelled out, but in, look through all of that and get the point of the passage. The point is not to focus on the divorce clause and the exceptions and what is allowed. Our focus should be on the sanctity and permanence of marriage. In fact, it's even stronger in the Gospel of Mark than in Matthew because Mark doesn't even include the exception clause. Mark wants our focus to be not to be on what to do when marriage is broken, but on what God intended in marriage. So Jesus speaking to all the people listening to him, to all his disciples, Jesus speaking to us today through his word. He intends marriage to be one man, one woman for life until only death tears us apart. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. That's what God wants for marriage. Even if that's not been your experience, it's still what God wants. That doesn't mean what you're experiencing now, even if it's not that, can't be redeemed, can't be made new, can't be refreshed, and can't be beautiful until the day that you and your spouse are torn apart by death. But we have to affirm what God does intend in marriage. My wife and I are very fortunate. This Saturday, my parents will celebrate their 50th anniversary. And next April, Jennifer's parents will celebrate their 50th anniversary. And we know, and we thank the Lord all the time, and we 
affirm our parents. Like, we know it's unusual to have a husband and wife, we've been married 22 years, to still have two sets of parents, still living, both celebrating 50 years of anniversary. And all the couples that we've sat down with for premarital counseling, that's maybe one time a couple that we've sat down in premarital counseling, both of their original parents were still married together. It just isn't common anymore. We, we hope, and what we say to them is if that is their legacy, praise God, you've been handed this legacy by His grace, now carry it on. But if it's not what they've been handed, if they've experienced divorce among their parents, we say, okay, now it's time for you to write a new legacy. It's time for you as a couple to get married, to be together until death tears you apart, and you hand that off to your kids, you hand that off to your grandkids. And I would say the same thing for you. Wherever you're at in marriage, whatever this, the condition of your marriage is, be faithful, be passionate, be loving for the rest of your days that you're together, however many years it is, until death tears you apart. And then let, let hand that off to your kids and grandkids. Let them see that passion for what God intends all the way to the end. Um, that's what God desires for marriage. One author put it like this. You don't learn to fly by learning what to do when the plane crashes. You don't train for war by learning how to retreat and quit. To see marriage in light of being a disciple of Jesus, you have to get to the heart of what God intends in marriage. And this is what God intends. This is what God wants. So you can't even move into the discussion on exceptions and divorce and remarriage without fully grasping God's intended created order. One flesh, God put together, never to be taken apart. That's what he wants. The Pharisees had misconstrued Moses' law in Deuteronomy 24 and made it into a command which was never what God intended. God made it an allowance because of their hard hearts, but he never commands divorce. And even though Jesus gives one way out, one exception in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, the emphasis he makes is still on the permanence and sanctity of marriage. So how does what Jesus is saying here in this passage in Mark show a distinction from his culture concerning marriage and divorce that reveals the presence of his gospel? Four ways. Number one, Jesus sides with the conservative Shammai school in a way, not totally, but he totally dismisses the Hillel school as unbiblical. No fault, frivolous divorce, not okay in God's eyes. Can't claim incompatibility or not getting along or whatever, burning food, talking to a man in public is grounds for divorce. Not being physically attractive, all these silly things. Jesus actually goes further in verses 11 and 12 when he speaks of remarriage because he says, if you've gotten a divorce for the wrong reason and you remarry, then you commit adultery in verses 11 and 12. Now, in the law of the state, once you get a divorce back then, you were free to remarry. But God's law is above civil law, and Jesus shows while it may be okay in the eyes of the state, it might not be okay in God's eyes. More on this in a second. Just like in our country, it's not illegal to commit adultery. There's no law against committing adultery. God's law says it's a sin for which we're held accountable. So God's law always rules over civil law for the Christian. Obey God versus obey man. Secondly, he, Jesus sided with Shammai, but not totally because he does not command or demand divorce. That's second. Jesus makes an allowance for divorce, but it's not commanded or demanded. Even in the case of adultery, as a Christian, follower of Christ, you have options. The Bible does not command divorce even in that case, and even couples that I've counseled who've gone through infidelity and adultery, um, on, a, on a, a few occasions, they're still together years later, working through it, forgiving, 
reconciling, working through it. Because you don't have to get a divorce, even in a matter of unfaithfulness and infidelity. Thirdly, Jesus makes the husband responsible. The husband can receive blame, which not even the Shammai school did back then. Jesus said in verse 11, If the man marries a divorced woman, he causes her to commit adultery. In that culture, men basically had the freedom to do whatever they want, especially when it came to their relationships with women. Women had no rights. Men had all the rights. But that's not okay with God, and and Jesus brings that out. In Jewish culture, males dominated females. Women were spoken of mainly in how their allegiance shifted from their father to their husband, and when their husband dies, to their son, who will take care of their mother as she ages. Jesus acknowledges the divine will of God to create woman and man in his image, where women, women are not subject but his equal, not his subject but his equal. Jesus also declares that man's obligation to his wife trumps his obligations to his parents, second only to obeying God in sacredness. In Jewish culture, man controlled the divorce, and so man was lord of the relationship. Jesus shows it's God who's sovereign, and man shouldn't separate that relationship. So all kinds of ways, Jesus takes the power out of the man's hands and puts it back where it belongs, in God's hands. And both man and woman are equally responsible in these regards. And then fourthly, the righteousness from the heart that God gives us by his grace through the gospel focuses on the permanence and sanctity of marriage, not on exception clauses. In other words, in marriage, something bad happens in your marriage, you're not looking for a way out, you're looking for a way through, right? This doesn't mean divorce is never on the table, but only after all the avenues of repentance and reconciliation have been exhausted. So what about the exception clause? It's actually not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, But it is mentioned in the parallel passage in Matthew 19, verse 9. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's implied in Mark because Jesus is not going to contradict himself teaching on the same subject. What Jesus is doing, he's giving his interpretation of the sum indecency from Deuteronomy 24 in this passage. And he uses the word translated sexual immorality. Now in the Greek, it's the word porneia. There's another word in the Greek that is used to express adultery, but it's not porneia. Porneia, we get our word pornography from that, is a broad term of sexual morality. It can refer to adultery, premarital sex, prostitution, homosexuality, incest, and other things. It's a very broad term. But it's a term that always implies sexual immorality. It's a sexual sin. It's a sexual sin that breaks the one flesh covenant of marriage. That's the exception, and that's the only exception Jesus gives in this passage. So Jesus is saying that unless divorce is for porneia, then remarriage, which was always done because it was very hard to be single in that culture, marriage can lead to adultery. And some commentators will even add, look, it's not even like a one-time occurrence of porneia, but it has to be ongoing, unrepeated occurrences of sexual morality. <clears throat> the emphasis is still on permanence and sanctity of marriage. You can't just run in and out of marriages as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, notice another thing about verses 11 and 12. Whoever divorces his wife and is implied for reasons other than the exception clause of porneia, so whoever divorces his wife for a reason not sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, either him or her. This does not mean perpetual adultery into the end of the age, but the sin of adultery. There are some who believe in some churches that teach that if you get divorced for the wrong reasons and you get remarried, 
You are an adulteress forever. No repentance, no forgiveness. This is just who you are until you die. And nothing can change that until you get back with your first husband. But Jesus is not saying that. He says you, you, you commit an act of adultery for which you can be forgiven. It's not as though you're redefined into the end of the age as an adulteress. Secondly, the act of adultery is only committed when remarriage follows an unbiblical divorce. If the divorce is because of porneia, then you are free to remarry is what Jesus is saying. There is no adultery. <coughs> I know that's a lot. Your head may be spinning. Um, I'll be glad to send my notes to anybody who wants my notes, or you can re-listen to the, the podcast. But considering all we've looked at, here's a few things I want to leave you with. Number one, Jesus clearly affirms the creation mandate of marriage as one man and one woman for as long as they both shall live. One of the arguments today for same-sex marriage, especially in the church, there's more and more churches who are saying this is okay. One of the arguments is Jesus never says same-sex marriage is a sin. But Jesus never said anything about same-sex marriage specifically because it wasn't an issue in his day. It's a logical fallacy of an argument from silence. I guarantee you in your constitution and bylaws, there's nothing in all its chapel that says you can't smoke weed during a church service. That doesn't mean it's okay. It's just never an issue. Never has ever brought it up. They don't make rules to cover every possible thing that could happen. And so saying something's okay just because no one said it's not okay is not a legitimate way to argue for the rightness of something. Jesus never spoke directly to that issue because that wasn't an issue in first century Jewish culture. Homosexual behavior of all sorts and varieties was condemned as sin and would be included under a blanket statement about sexual morality. No one was advocating for the normalization of the same-sex relationships. They saying Jesus would affirm these relationships because he doesn't condemn them is the argument from silence. As we all know, there's much more to this issue than just Jesus affirming the biblical creative mandate of marriage, but that is a strong starting position it is a position we as the church have to be clear on um, as we are increasingly going to be in the minority on this opinion as the laws of our land continue to change and ostracize those of us who hold this very old, very orthodox position. We obey God and not man. And the same God who calls us to love all people, including our enemies, and serve and sacrifice for the least of these uh, may, may also hear us call out this gospel of grace to those who are lost and engaged in these kinds of relationships and have hard conversations with these people while not changing the truth of Scripture. And I don't know how it is for your younger people in your life, but my, my two oldest daughters are almost 20, almost 17. It's incredible. I'm shocked, not in a bad way, shocked in a surprising way at the number of people in their life, friends and friends of friends, who are publicly identifying as either homosexual or bisexual. It's increasing like crazy, and, and we're having to disciple them. Here's how you can be in this relationship with this person, love them well, but also speak the truth in love and let them know this is not what God's designed you for. This is not healthy. This is not going to lead to life and joy and, and uh, fruitfulness. And as by the grace of God and with the strength of God, we as the church of Jesus Christ will never waver on this issue, no matter what price we have to pay for continuing to proclaim what the Bible declares, but doing it with love and grace and not doing it with our machine gun theology and just shooting people down. Uh, secondly, so first, 
Jesus clearly affirms one man, one woman for life. Secondly, see the purpose of marriage as a demonstration of the gospel. There is a Godward orientation to marriage. He created it, he ordained it, defined it, established it. It's his idea. And as Jesus says, God joins us together, which is true of all marriages. And so single people, regardless of age, marriage is not about you just finding a soulmate who will complete you. It's not about you figuring out what he or she will look like and how funny, quirky, cute, romantic, talented, beautiful, handsome they will look. Marriage is not about who you can call your husband or wife or who will walk next to you or make you look good for the next 50 years. God may call you to singleness. It's rare. It does happen. But for most of you, he will call you to marriage. And his purpose is to put someone in your life who will be part of sanctifying you, making you more like Jesus, and together you demonstrate the gospel. You display the gospel to other people. There is a place for physical attraction and compatibility. It's not that that doesn't matter, but the ultimate purpose is not physical attractiveness or even compatibility or even your happiness. It's God's purpose to display the gospel through your marriage. And if you're walking with him and loving him and pursuing him, you will also be incredibly happy and joyful as he does that. And you're going to be incredibly happy, unhappy when you're being sanctified through hard things because of that. This was the Ephesians 5 passage on marriage. A husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. And a wife loves and respects and follows the leadership of her husband as the church does with Christ. It's not that the husband is Christ and the wife is the church. It's not a perfect picture. It is a picture of the gospel. Our marriages aren't the gospel, but they point to the gospel. And just as Jesus' statements in Mark 10 didn't fit any schools of thought in his day, so Paul's teaching in Ephesians 5 was completely countercultural. Husbands didn't need to love their wives because they basically owned their wives. But Paul said, husbands, love your wives. So when a husband would actually love their wife in that culture, people were like, that's different. And, and they were like, well, let me tell you why. I love my wife like Christ loves the church. Wives in the Roman culture in the first century had no choice but to follow the leadership of their husband. She had no voice, she had no say, no vote. It wasn't an option. They could be booted out the door at any time, but when a wife willfully chose to respect, honor, and follow the leadership of her husband, it pointed others to the greater reality of the gospel. Oh, man, she's not just doing what he says because he's beat her or coerced her or she has no choice. She's willfully following his leadership. That's different. Well, let me tell you why it's different. I'm following the leadership of my husband just like the church follows the leadership of Jesus. When Jesus taught this in Matthew 19, what he said was so countercultural and hard, the disciples said what? You might know. It's probably better not even to get married. This is so hard, Jesus. Why even get married? And the healthy marriage that displays the gospel is so impossible. You can only do it because Jesus is alive inside of you. That's the only way you will fight through all the junk that you have to fight through as a husband and wife and still love each other. That's the only way you'll stay committed to each other no matter how much you sin against each other. And even if really hard acts of infidelity or adultery have happened, or if you have really sinned against each other, the only way you're going to stay together and demonstrate joy and, and love that, that you have a marriage that your kids want to emulate is because Jesus is in you making it happen. That's the only way. It's that impossible. It's only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Healthy marriages here today are only healthy and demonstrating the gospel because of Jesus. So we worship him and we point people to how amazing he is and not how amazing we are. We're not that amazing. Anybody got a healthy marriage here? You know. It's really more about Jesus than it is about me and her because we can be button heads all the way to the church building and walk in the door. Hey, how y'all doing? We love each other so much. And you get back in the car. Y'all know it's not because we're amazing. It's because he's amazing. And struggling marriages here today, it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. You don't have to give up on them because Jesus is here and the power of his gospel can still change hearts and still change people and help you love and serve one another and walk in forgiveness and repentance. Singles here today, don't worry about your future. If God's called you to singleness, Jesus will be enough for you. If he hasn't, trust your father. He will order your steps for you to meet someone who you can marry and be a partner with you in the gospel. Now, you've got to get out of the basement. You've got to get out of the closet. You've got to like, get out there and be around people, right? You can't, you got, God's not going to just mail them to your house. So there's things you need to do, being in healthy community with people to meet somebody. So do those things. Uh, don't just expect God to gift wrap this person, but trust that in his timing, in his way, it will happen. You don't have to stay up at night trying to figure that out. Sleep in peace. Your dad will take care of you. I, I am continually amazed at how the fear of loneliness will drive single people, whether they're in their teens, early 20s, 50s, or 60s. The fear of loneliness will drive single people to do really unhealthy things. So this is where the church of Jesus Christ can surround singles, whether they're young or whether they're old, and say, hey, maybe, maybe God supplies you with a spouse. Maybe he doesn't. We'll be your family. We'll invite you in. We'll invite you over for meals. We'll do life with you. We'll provide community for you until that day comes that, that maybe he provides another spouse for you so that they're not tempted to do really unhealthy things. Those who bear the scars of divorce as a spouse or as a child know that Jesus sees and knows and cares, and he himself is here to heal and bind your wounds and give you a new family called the church that will love you unconditionally, though not perfectly, and walk with you through this painful journey. Guys, the way we live this out can demonstrate to our region the presence and reality of Jesus and his gospel as the body of Christ. As husbands and wives persevere through sin, even the sin of adultery, and repent and remain committed to each other. As singles see marriage as God's purpose to show the gospel in their life and not just to make them happy. As we as the church help bear the burden of the weight of those who bear the scars of divorce. As we partner with and invite into our lives single moms and single dads who need so much help because it is so hard. As we do that together as the body of Christ, our city, our region, sees something in this body of believers that can only be explained by the presence and reality of Jesus. That's different. I want to be a part of that community. Think about how a church made up of couples committed to let their marriages show the righteousness of Jesus and be salt and light. Think about how that could look in a church. We work together to help each other's marriages last. We fight for each other's marriages to last. Older couples mentor younger couples like Titus 2 talks about to say that you can make it. Year 3, year 4, year 5, year 6, year 7 can be really hard. But if you persevere, there are beautiful things waiting for you in year 10 and 15 and 20. And for me, in year 25 and 30 and whenever we get to that, those years, you don't want to miss out on those beautiful things to come. When men in the church 
see a young husband not fulfilling his responsibilities as a husband, they love him enough to come alongside and say, hey, here's how I can teach you to be a godly husband and father like you're supposed to be. And the same thing for wives and moms. Here's how we can help you glorify God in the way he's created you to be a godly wife and a godly mom. Alds Chapel, be a church that fights together for our marriages. Look, however God's created something, guaranteed Satan wants to destroy it. God made one man, one woman, and one flesh covenant for life. Satan wants to destroy it. But we fight, and we love, and we pray, and we counsel, and we work to be a church where marriage is upheld and valued and honored. And the world sees something different in us through our marriages and our families. And we tell them, it's because of Jesus. So death do us part, through thick or thin, ups or downs, rich or poor, we are for each other. Satan will not tear us apart, only death. And even then, death doesn't win. Because what God has put together, God will help us stay together. Jesus, thank you for helping us be your people by giving us not just physical life, but spiritual life, for putting us together in these beautiful relationships called marriage, the most, phys- uh, the most intimate relationship that we have with any person on the face of the earth. Thank you for blessing us with spouses. Uh, Thank you for sustaining us if we are currently single. Thank you for helping the church (coughs) be the community of God's people for all of us. And I pray for Oz Chapel. Pray for the marriages, wherever they're at, in whatever ways that they are good. It's by your grace. It's because of Jesus being present. And so let that continue to be enjoyed and let Jesus continue to be glorified because of that. Wherever marriages might be struggling in this church, wherever there's been built up animosity, resentment, or conflict, it hasn't been resolved, it's just covered up, swept under the rug, not dealt with. God, may you send the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the people of God to help. To help there be honest conversations, maybe even counseling if necessary, so there can be a restoration and a return to the, the joy that this couple had on the day they... They stood before God and looked into each other's eyes and said, I do. God, bless this church with healthy marriages. Bless this church with vibrant, passionate, joy-filled marriages so that children and grandchildren in this entire community can see the beauty of what you've created and ordained. Do all these things because of your great love for us, because you are so amazing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.